Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 31 Rako kept Deacon in the interview room for another 20 minutes, quizzing him about the damage to Fork's car, but it was a lost cause. He eventually let the old man leave with a warning ringing in his ears. Fork took the keys to the police car and waited behind the station house until Deacon drove away. He gave it five minutes, then slowly drove the route to Deacon's farm. Along the way, the fire warning sign advised him the danger was still extreme. He turned at a faded sign pointing to the ambitiously named Deacon Estates and rumbled along a gravel driveway. A few ragged sheep raised their heads hopefully as he drove past. The property was high on a hill and offered a breathtaking view of the surrounding countryside. On Fork's right, he could clearly see the Hadler's home some distance below in the shallow valley. The rotary washing line was a cobweb on a stick and a couple of garden benches looked like doll's furniture. Twenty years ago he had loved that view, on the occasions he'd visited Ellie here. Now he couldn't stand to look at it. Fork pulled up outside a dilapidated barn as Deacon was attempting to lock his car. The man's hands were shaking and he dropped the keys in the dust. Fork folded his arms and watched Deacon bend slowly to retrieve them. Deacon's dog trotted over to his master's feet and growled in Fork's direction. The old man glanced up. The aggression in his face had for once been replaced with something else. He just looked exhausted and confused. I just left the police station, Deacon said, but he didn't sound sure. Yeah, you did. So what do you want then? Deacon stood straight as best he could. You're going to take a pop at an old man while no one's around? You're a coward. I'm not going to waste a career-ending punch on you, Fork said. What then? It was a good question. Fork looked at Deacon. For two decades the man had loomed larger than life. He'd been the bogeyman, the spectre at the feast, the monster under the bed. Standing in front of him now, Fork could still taste his own anger in the back of his throat, but it was diluted with something else. Not pity. Definitely not pity. Instead, Fork realised he felt cheated. He'd left it too long to slay the beast, and over time it had shriveled and wasted, until it was no longer a fair fight. Fork took a step forward, and for a second, Deacon's eyes registered fear. A stripe of shame flashed through him. Fork stopped in his tracks. What was he doing here? He looked Deacon in the eye. I had nothing to do with your daughter's death. Bullshit, 
Your name was on that note. Your alibi was a fairy tale. The words again had the hollow ring of learned repetition. Fork cut him off. How do you know? Deacon, tell me. Why have you always been so sure Luke and I weren't together the day she died? Because I tell you, from here, it seems like you know a lot more about that day than you've let on. There was no smell of dinner in the air when Mal Deacon let himself into the farmhouse and he felt a hot flash of irritation. In the living room, his nephew was lying on the old brown couch with his eyes closed and a beer can balanced on his gut. The cricket was blaring from the radio. The Aussies were chasing the South African side. Deacon kicked Grant's boots off the couch and his nephew prized open one eye. No bloody tea on yet, Deacon said. Ellie's not back from school. You couldn't have started something, you lazy bastard. I've been out there up to my eyes with those ewes all day. Grant shrugged. Ellie's job. Deacon grunted. But he was right, it was. He snapped a beer from the six-pack by Grant's side and went through to the rear of the house. His daughter's bedroom was clinically neat. It stood silent and almost aloof from the chaos of the rest of the house. Deacon stood in the doorway and took a swig from the can. His eyes roamed over the room like beetles, but he was hesitant to step inside. Poised at the threshold of the pristine room, he felt the uneasy sensation of misalignment. A loose thread, a crack in the pavement. It looked perfect, but it wasn't right. His eyes flicked to the white bedpost and he frowned. There was a tiny circular dent in the wood and the paint there had cracked and flaked. The pink carpet below the post had been scrubbed in a small and imperfect circle and was now one or at most two shades darker than the rest. Barely noticeable, but there. Deacon felt a cold spot form in his stomach, like a tiny ball bearing. He stared at the silent room and the dent and the spot as the alcohol carried the first threads of anger through his veins. His daughter was supposed to be there, and she wasn't. He clutched the beer in his palm and waited for its cool, solid weight to calm him. Later, he would tell the police that was the moment he knew something was seriously wrong. Fork watched Ellie's father closely. You might be able to claim your hands are clean when it comes to the Hadlers, Fork said, but you know something about what happened to your daughter. You watch your mouth. Deacon's voice was quiet and tight, like a coiled spring. Is that why you were always so keen to pin Ellie's death on me? If there's no suspect to hand, people start looking for one. Who knows what they'd start to uncover if they looked too closely at you? Neglect? Abuse? The old man lunged at Fork with surprising force, taking him by surprise and knocking him flat to the ground. Deacon's grubby hand mashed against his face. The dog circled, barking frantically. I will gut you! Deacon was shouting now. I hear you breathe one word like that and I will gut you like an animal. I loved her, you hear me? I love that girl! Luke Hadler's heart was in his throat. He paused with one hand on the radio as the South Africans nearly took a wicket. Batsman restored and panic over. He switched it off. He sprayed body mist liberally over his bare chest and flung open his wardrobe. 
Automatically, he reached for the grey shirt she'd admired once. Luke checked his reflection in the mirror and flashed his teeth as he buttoned it. He liked what he saw, but he knew from experience that meant bugger all. It took a mind reader to know what was going through those girls' heads half the time. Today, for example, the image of Ellie pressing her hot, mean mouth on Aaron in the classroom popped into his head and his reflection frowned. Was that the first time it had happened? Somehow he felt sure it wasn't. Luke felt an intense flash of something like jealousy and gave his head a sharp shake. What did he care? He didn't give a stuff. But Jesus, Ellie Deacon could be a little bitch sometimes. Ignoring him and then running off to Aaron? Not that it bothered him, but Christ, he only had to look at that picture to know there was something seriously wrong. Deacon's long fingers gouged painfully against the flesh of Fork's cheek and Fork grabbed his wrist, wrenching him off. He flipped Deacon onto his back and stood up, stepping away. It was over in a matter of seconds, but both men were panting, the adrenaline kicking into overdrive. Deacon stared up at him, the corners of his mouth white with spit. Fork leaned over him, ignoring the dog as it bared its teeth. He stood over an ill man lying on the ground. Later, he would hate himself for it. At that moment, he didn't care. Aaron's arms were aching under the box of plants by the time he got home, but the grin was still fixed on his face. His good mood was tempered only by a pang of mild regret. Maybe he should have followed Ellie out of the classroom. That's what Luke would have done, he thought. Kept the conversation flowing convinced her she did want that coke after all. He frowned and dumped the box on the porch. Ellie had definitely smiled at Luke as she left the room. They were barely speaking these days, but she still managed to smile for him. Aaron had braced himself for a smirk and a cheeky comment from his friend after Ellie left, but Luke had merely raised his eyebrows. Careful with that one, was all he'd said. Aaron had suggested they head to the main street, hang around for a while, but Luke had shaken his head. Sorry, mate, got somewhere to be. Ellie had said she was busy too. Doing what? Aaron wondered. If she was working, she would have said, wouldn't she? He forced himself not to wonder too hard what both his friends were doing without him. Instead, for something to do, he fetched his fishing poles. He'd head to the river, upstream where the fish had been biting. Or, he thought suddenly, he could go to the rock tree, just in case Ellie was there. He debated. If she'd wanted to see him, she would have said. But she was so difficult to read. Maybe if they spent a bit more time together one-on-one, she'd realise he would be good for her. If he couldn't even make her see that, something was seriously wrong. You think I killed your daughter that day? Fork said, looking down at Deacon. You think I held her body underwater until she drowned and lied to everyone, to my own dad, all these years? I don't know what happened that day. I think you do. I loved her. Since when, Fork said, has that ever stopped anybody from hurting someone? Give me a bloody clue then. On a scale of one to jail, how much shit have you stirred up? Rako was shouting down the phone. Fork realised he'd never really heard him angry before. None. Look, it's fine. Leave it, 
Falk said. He was sitting in the police car a kilometre down the road from Deacon's place. He'd had eight missed calls on his phone from Rako. None, Rako said. You think I came down in the last shower, mate? You got a complaint against you. You think I can't guess exactly where you are? I'm just some thick country plot who hasn't got a clue? What? Falk said. No, Rako, mate, of course not. He was shaken up by his own lack of control. It felt wrong, like he was wearing a costume. You bugger off the minute the interview's over. I know you listened in, by the way. And I can hear in your voice you've been up to something with Deacon. In a police car. So it's not fine, is it? I'm still in charge around here last I checked. And if you've been harassing someone who's already complained, for God's sake, then we've one serious problem, mate. There was a long silence. Falk could imagine Rako pacing around the station with Deborah and Barnes listening in. Falk took a few deep breaths. His heart was still pounding, but common sense was starting to return. We haven't got a problem, Falk said. I'm sorry, I snapped for a minute. If there's any fallout, I'll cop it, not you. Promise. The line was silent for so long, Falk wasn't sure if Rako was still there. Listen, mate. Rako's voice was lower. I think all this might be getting too much for you, with your background here. Falk shook his head, even though there was no one to see it. No, I told you, it was a moment of madness. No harm done. No further harm, anyway. Look, you've done everything that could have been asked of you. More, Rako was saying. We've got further than I ever would have alone. I absolutely know that, mate. But maybe it's time we called it a day. Calling Clyde. I blame myself for that. I should have done it ages ago. This isn't your responsibility. It never was. Rako, mate, and you're obsessed with Deacon and Dow. You're obsessed with pointing the finger at them. It's as if you need to get them for the Hadlers to make up for whatever happened to Ellie. It's not about that. Dow's name was in Karen's handwriting. I know, but there's no other evidence. They've got an alibi, both of them now. Rako sighed down the phone. Deacon's phone call at the time of the Hadler shootings looks like it's legit. Barnes is getting the phone records now, but the girl from the pharmacy has backed him up. She remembers it happening. Shit. Falk ran a hand over his head. Why didn't she mention it before? She was never asked. There was a pause. Deacon didn't do it, Rako said. He didn't kill the Hadlers. You need to open your eyes and fast. You're staring so hard at the past that it's blinding you. Chapter 32 Fork felt the tension in his shoulders finally start to lift around the time Gretchen poured the third glass of red. A weight that had pressed on his chest for so long that he'd almost stopped noticing at last began to ease. He could feel muscles in his neck loosen. He took a mouthful of wine and enjoyed the sensation as his cluttered head gave way to a more pleasant type of fog. The kitchen was now dark. The remains of dinner cleared from the table. A lamb stew, her own, she'd said. Animal, not recipe. They'd washed the dishes together, her hands deep in suds, his wrapped around a tea towel. Working together in tandem, and revelling self-consciously in the domesticity. 
Eventually, they'd moved through to the living room where he'd sunk, satiated into a deep old couch, glass in hand. He'd watched her move around the room slowly, turning on low lights on side tables, creating a deep golden glow. She hit an invisible switch and discreet jazz filled the room. Something mellow and indistinct. The maroon curtains were open, flapping in the night breeze. Outside the windows, the land was still. Earlier, Gretchen had picked him up from the pub in her car. What happened to yours? she'd asked. He'd told her about the damage. She'd insisted on seeing it, and they'd walked to the car park where she'd gingerly lifted the tarpaulin. The car had been hosed down, but the inside was still destroyed. She'd been sympathetic, laughed gently as she rubbed his shoulder. She made it seem not as bad. As they'd driven along the back roads, Gretchen told him Lockie was sleeping at the babysitter's overnight. No further explanation. In the moonlight, her blonde hair gleamed. Now she joined him on the couch. Same couch, at the other end. A distance he would have to breach. He always found that bit difficult, reading the signs, judging it just right. Too early and it caused offence, too late the same. She smiled. Maybe he wouldn't find it too difficult tonight, he thought. You're still managing to resist the call of Melbourne then? she said. She took a sip. The wine was the same colour as her lips. Some days it's easier than others, Fork said. He smiled back. He could feel a warmth bloom in his chest, his belly, lower. Any sign of wrapping things up? Honestly, it's hard to say, he said, vague. He didn't want to talk about the case. She nodded, and they lapsed into a comfortable silence. The blue notes of the jazz were swallowed up by the heat. Hey, she said, I've got something to show you. She twisted around, reaching up to the bookshelves behind the couch. The movement brought her close, exposing a flash of smooth torso. Gretchen flopped back, holding two photo albums, big books with thick covers. She opened the first page of one, then discarded it, putting it off to the side. She opened the other, scooted closer to Fork. The distance breached already. He hadn't even finished his glass. I found this the other day, she said. He glanced at it. He could feel her bare arm on his. It reminded him of the day he'd seen her again for the first time, outside the funeral. No, he didn't want to think about that now, not about the Hadlers, not about Luke. Fork looked down as she opened the album. It had three or four photos to a sticky page covered with a plastic sheet. The first few pictures showed Gretchen as a small child, the images bright with the hallmark red and yellow tones of a chemist's developing room. She flipped through. Where is... Ah, here, see? She said, tilting the page towards him and pointing. Fork leaned in. It was him. And her. A picture he'd never seen before. Thirty years ago. Him bare-legged in grey shorts, her wearing a too-large school dress. They were side by side amid a small group of uniformed kids. The others were all smiling, but both he and Gretchen were squinting suspiciously at the camera. Childhood blondes. Hers lit with gold, his white. 
posed under duress at the instruction of the person behind the camera for guest, judging by his mutinous expression. First day of school, I think. Gretchen looked sideways and raised an eyebrow. So, it would appear that in fact you and I were friends before anyone else. He laughed and leaned in a little as she ran a finger over the image from the past. She looked up at him in the present. Red lips, parting in a smile over white teeth. And then they were kissing. His arm around her back pulled her in closer and her mouth was hot on his, his nose against her cheek, his other hand in her hair. Her chest was soft on his, and he was keenly conscious of her denim skirt pressed against his thighs. They broke away, an awkward laugh, a deep breath. Her eyes were almost navy in the low light. He brushed a strand of hair from her forehead, then she was moving in again, closer, kissing him, the scent of her shampoo and the taste of red wine in every breath. He didn't hear the mobile ring. Only when she stopped moving did he register anything outside of the two of them. He tried to ignore it, but she held her finger to his lips. He kissed it. Shh, she giggled. Is that yours or... No, it's mine. Sorry. Leave it, he said. But she was already moving pushing herself up out of the couch, away from him. I can't, I'm sorry, it might be the babysitter. She smiled, a little witchy smile that made his skin tingle where she'd been. He could still feel her. She looked at the screen. It is. I'll be back, make yourself comfortable. She actually winked, a playful, ironic nod to what was to come. He grinned as she left the room. Hi, Andrea, everything okay? He heard her say. He blew out his cheeks, rubbed his eyes with his knuckles, shook his head, took a slug of wine, sat up straighter on the couch. Waking up a little, but not too much, trying not to break the spell, anticipating her return. Gretchen's voice was a low murmur in the other room. He leaned his head back on the couch, listening to the indistinct sounds. He could hear the cadence, up and down, soothing. Yes, the thought popped into his head unbidden. Maybe he could almost get used to this. Not in Kiwara, but somewhere else. Somewhere grassy and open where it rained. He knew how to handle the wide open spaces. Melbourne and his real life seemed five hours and a million miles away. The city might have got under his skin, but for the first time he wondered what was hidden in his core. He shifted on the couch and his hand brushed against the cool covers of the photo albums. In the other room, Gretchen's voice was a dull murmur. No urgency in her tone. She was patient, explaining something. Falk pulled the album into his lap, opening it half-heartedly, blinking away the heaviness from the wine. He was looking for the photo of the two of them, but realised immediately he'd picked up the wrong album. Instead of the early childhood snaps on the first page, Gretchen was older in this one, 19 or 20 maybe. Falk started to close the cover, then stopped. He looked at the pictures with interest. He'd never really seen her at that age. He'd seen younger and now older, nothing in between. Gretchen was still looking a little suspiciously at the camera, but the reluctance to pose was gone. The skirt was shorter and the expression less coy. He turned the page 
and felt a jolt as he came face to face with Gretchen and Luke, frozen in time in a glossy colour print. Both in their early twenties, intimate and laughing, heads close, smiles matching. What had she said? We dated for a year or two, nothing serious. It fell apart, of course. A string of similar pictures spanned two double pages. Days out, holidays by the beach, a Christmas party. Then all of a sudden they stopped. As Luke's face was changing from a 20-something bloke to a man nearing 30. About the age Luke had met Karen, he disappeared from Gretchen's album. That was okay, Falk told himself. That was fine. It made sense. He flicked through the remaining pages as Gretchen's muffled voice floated through from the other room. He was about to close the book when his hand stilled. On the very last page, under the yellowing plastic protector, was a photo of Luke Hadler. He was looking down, away from the camera, with a serene smile on his face. The picture was cropped close, but he appeared to be in a hospital room, perched on the edge of a bed. In his arms, he held a newborn baby. The tiny pink face, dark hair and chubby wrist peeked out from the folds of a blue blanket in his arms. Luke held the child comfortably, closely, paternally. Billy, Falk thought automatically. He'd seen a thousand similar photos at the Hadless place. The name hit a dud note the moment it landed. Falk leaned in, over Gretchen's photo album, rubbing his eyes, wide awake now. The picture was not a good one, taken in a dim room with a heavy flash, but the focus was sharp. Falk shoved the album under the tableside lamp, the mood lighting revealing the image more clearly. Nestled in the blue blanket, circling the baby's fat wrist, was a white plastic bracelet. The child's name was written on it in neat capital letters. Lachlan Shona. Chapter 33 In the black windows, Falk could see his reflection warp and shift. Gretchen's voice drifted down the hall. It sounded suddenly different to his ears. He grabbed the other album and flicked through. Photos showed Gretchen alone, Gretchen with her mother on a night out in Sydney with her older sister. No, Luke. Until... He nearly missed it. He turned back a page. It was another bad photo, hardly worth including in an album. Taken at some community event. Gretchen was in the background of the action. Standing next to her was Karen Hadler. And standing next to Karen was Luke. Over his wife's head, Luke Hadler was looking straight at Gretchen. She was looking back with the same little witchy smile that she'd just flashed at Fork. He turned to the photo of Luke with Gretchen's baby son. The son who, with his dark hair and brown eyes and sharp nose, had grown up to look nothing like his mother. Fork jumped as Gretchen spoke behind him. It was nothing, she said. Fork spun round. She smiled, put down her mobile and picked up her wine glass. Lockie just needed to hear my voice. Her smile faded as she saw the look on his face and the photo album open in his hand. She looked back at him, her expression a mask. Did Jerry and Barb Hadler know? Falk heard the edge in his own voice and didn't like it. 
did Karen. She bristled, instantly defensive. There's nothing to know, Gretchen. I told you. Lockie's dad's not around. Luke was an old friend, so he visited. Spent a couple of hours with Lockie now and again. So what? What's wrong with that? It was a male role model thing. It was nothing. Gretchen was babbling. She stopped. She took a deep breath, looked at Fork. Luke's not his father. Fork said nothing. He's not, she snapped. What does it say on Lockie's birth certificate? It's blank, not that it's any of your business. Have you got a single photo of Lockie's dad? One picture you can show me? She met the question with silence. Have you? He said. I don't have to show you anything. It can't have been easy for you when Luke met Karen. Fork didn't recognise his own tone. It sounded distant and cold. For God's sake, Aaron, he's not Lockie's father. Gretchen's face and neck were flushed. She took a slug of wine. A pleading note had crept into her voice. We hadn't slept together for... Jesus, it had been years. What happened? Luke didn't want to settle down with you. Has one eye on the road, then he meets Karen and... Yeah, and what? She interrupted. The wine sloshed against the side of her glass. She blinked back tears and any earlier tenderness was gone. Okay, yes, it pissed me off when he chose her. It hurt me. Luke hurt me, but that's life, isn't it? That's love. She stopped. Bit the tip of her tongue between her front teeth. I wondered why you didn't like Karen, Fork said. But that would well and truly do it, wouldn't it? So? I don't have to be her best friend. She had all the things you wanted. Luke... The security, the money, at least what there was of it. You were here on your own. Your child's father had moved on, left town allegedly. Or was he actually down the road playing dad and husband to other people? Gretchen rounded on him, tears spilling over now. How can you ask me this? If I had an affair with Luke while he was married, if he's the father of my son... Fork stared at her. She had always been the beautiful one almost ethereal. Then he remembered the stain in Billy Hadler's room. He remembered Gretchen raising her gun and shooting those rabbits down. I'm asking because I have to ask. Jesus, what is wrong with you? Her face had hardened. Her teeth were stained from the wine. Are you jealous that for a while I chose Luke and he chose me? That's probably half the reason you're here now, isn't it? Thought you might finally manage to get one up on Luke now he's gone. Don't be stupid, he said. I'm stupid? God, look at you, she said, louder now. Always following him around when we were younger like a lap dog, and now, even now, you're hanging around in a town you hate because of him. It's pathetic. What kind of hold has he got over you? It's like you're obsessed. Fork could almost feel the eyes of his dead friend watching them from that album. Jesus, Gretchen, I'm here because three people were killed, all right? So I hope for your son's sake that lying about your relationship with Luke is the worst thing you've done to that family. She pushed past him, knocking his wine glass off the table as she went. The stain seeped like blood into the carpet. She flung open the front door and a gust of hot wind blew in a flurry of leaves. Get out! Her eyes were like shadows. Her face was flushed and ugly red. On the doorstep, she took a half-breath, as though she was about to say something more, then stopped. 
her mouth twitched up in a cold little smile. Aaron, wait. Before you do anything rash, I've got something to tell you. Her voice was almost a whisper. I know. Know what? She leaned in so her lips were almost at his ear. He could smell the wine on her breath. I know your alibi for the day Ellie Deacon died was bullshit. Because I know where Luke was. And it wasn't with you. Wait, Gretchen. She gave him a shove. Looks like we've all got our secrets, Aaron. The door slammed. Chapter 34 It was a long walk back to town. Falk felt every step ricochet from the soles of his feet up to his pounding head. His thoughts swarmed like flies. He relived conversations he'd had with Gretchen, holding them up under this new stark light, examining them, seeking out the flaws. He phoned Rako. No answer. Perhaps he was still angry. Falk left a message, asked him to call. It was near closing time when he finally reached the fleece. Scott Whitlam was on the pub steps fastening his bike helmet. His injured nose looked better than it had the other night. Whitlam took one look at Falk's face and stopped. You all right, mate? Rough night. Looks like it. Whitlam took his helmet off. Come on, I'll buy you a quick one. Falk wanted nothing more than to crawl up the staircase to bed, but didn't have the energy to argue. He followed Whitlam inside. The bar was nearly empty and McMurdo was wiping the counter. He paused when they walked in and reached for two beer glasses without asking. Whitlam put his helmet on the counter. I'll get these. Put them on the tap, mate, he said to McMurdo. The barman frowned. No tap. Come on, for a regular. Don't make me say it again, my friend. Okay, fine. Whitlam pulled out his wallet and thumbed through it. Uh, I might be a bit, um, might have to put it on the card. I'll get it. Falk cut across him and put a 20 on the counter, waving away Whitlam's protestations. It's fine, forget it. Cheers. Falk took a deep swallow. The sooner it was drunk, the sooner he could call it a night. What's happened then? Whitlam asked. Oh, nothing. I'm just sick to death of this place. It hurt me. Luke hurt me. Any progress? Falk thought for a wild moment about telling him. McMurdo had stopped cleaning and was listening from behind the bar. In the end, he shrugged. I'll just be glad to get out of here. Whatever happened, he was due back in Melbourne on Monday. Sooner, if Rako got his way. Whitlam nodded. Half your luck. Although, he held up a hand and crossed his fingers. I might be following your lead sooner than I thought. You're leaving Kiwara? Hopefully, I've got something to do soon for Sandra. She's had it up here. I've been looking at a new place, a school up north maybe. Bit of a change. Weather's hotter up north. Yeah, at least they get the rains, Whitlam said. It's the lack of water here makes the whole town crazy. I'll drink to that, Fork said, draining his glass. His head felt heavy. Wine, beer, emotion. Whitlam took the hint and followed suit. All right, better run. It's a school night after all. Whitlam offered his hand. Hopefully I'll see you before you leave, but if not, good luck. Fork shook it. Thanks, you too, up north. Whitlam left with a cheery wave and Fork handed the empty glasses to McMurdo. 
Did I hear you say you're heading out soon? Probably, Falk said. Well, I'll be sorry to see you go. Believe it or not, McMurdo said. You're the only one who reliably pays, which reminds me. He opened the cash register and gave Falk back his $20 note. I put the drinks on your room tab. Thought it would be easier to claim them on expenses or whatever you cops do. Fork took the twenty. Surprise. All oh, right. Thanks. Thought you said no tabs. I only said that to Whitlam. You're all right, though. Fork frowned. But not Whitlam. You must know him well enough. McMurdo gave a short laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know him well enough. That's why I also know where he keeps his money. He nodded to the poker machines flashing in the back room. Whitlam's a fan of the pokies? Fork asked. McMurdo nodded. And the rest. Horses, dogs. Always got one eye on the racing channel, the other on those apps on his phone. You're kidding. Fork was taken aback, but at the same time not surprised. He thought about the sports books in Whitlam's house. He'd come across a lot of gamblers in his career. There was no single type. The only thing they had in common was delusion and misery. He's subtle about it, but you see all sorts of things from behind a bar, McMurdo said. Especially when it comes to being able to pay for drinks, and I don't think he actually likes the pokies much. No? Ah, I get a sense there's small fry for him. Still doesn't stop him feeding his weight in gold coins into them every time he's here. That's what he was doing when he accidentally got clobbered the other night, when Jamie and Grant had their punch-up. Is that right? Anyway, I shouldn't be telling tales out of school, McMurdo said. There's nothing illegal about pissing your cash away, thank God. Otherwise I'd be out of business. So would a lot of people, Fogg managed to smile. These gambling types are fair old suckers, though. Always looking for strategies and loopholes. End of the day, it only works if you back the right horse. Fogg's room had never felt so much like a cell. He brushed his teeth without turning on the light and collapsed into bed. Despite the chaos in his head, he felt overwhelmed by exhaustion. Sleep was close. Out in the street, a tin can rolled along, its metallic clatter rattling in the quiet. Through his drowsiness, it reminded Fork of the artificial clang of the pokies. He closed his eyes. McMurdo was right about gambling. Like this case, sometimes all the strategies in the world couldn't help. It only works if you back the right horse. A cog turned deep in Fork's brain, lazily, because it was an ingrained one, crusted over and tough to shift. It reluctantly clunked one move over, then stopped, settled. Fork opened his eyes slowly. It was too dark to see anything, but he stared into the inky blackness, thinking. He pictured Kiwara laid out in three dimensions. He imagined himself climbing up to the lookout maybe, the scene below growing smaller the higher he went. When he reached the top he looked down. Over the town, the drought, the Hadlers, noticing for the first time how things looked from a very different perspective. Falk thought about that, with his eyes open, staring at the nothingness for long minutes, testing the cog in its new position. Finally he sat up, fully awake now, he pulled on a T-shirt and slipped his feet into his trainers. He grabbed his torch and an old newspaper and crept downstairs and into the car park. His car was right where he'd left it. 
The stench of shit made his eyes water, but he barely noticed it. He peeled back the tarpaulin and, using the newspaper as a makeshift glove, popped open the boot. It was kept separate from the body of the car by the back seats and had been protected from the shitstorm. Fork clicked on the torch and shone it into the empty boot. He stood there for a long time. Then he pulled out his mobile and took a photo. Back in his room, sleep took a long time to come. When morning broke, he woke and dressed early, then waited impatiently. The moment the clock ticked over to nine o'clock, Fork picked up the phone and made a single call. Luke Handler's palms were sweating on the steering wheel. The air conditioner was on overdrive, but had barely made a dent since he'd left Jamie Sullivan's place. His throat was dry, and he wished he had a bottle of water to hand. He made himself focus on the road ahead. He was nearly home. Just get there. He had turned into the final stretch when he saw the figure up ahead, standing by the road, all alone, waving. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com.